Welcome to the July 2nd episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Today's reading is Job chapters 22 through 24 and Acts chapter 11, but we'll focus only on the New Testament in this podcast. If you have any questions about anything in the Old Testament or New Testament reading assignment, please email me at mattellis1997 at gmail.com, and I'll have that email address in the show notes. Uh, If you send me a question, I may answer it on the next podcast. Acts 11. The Jews throughout Judea heard reports of Gentiles being saved. And it was wonderful that the Gentiles were embracing the gospel, especially since I'm a Gentile and you are probably a Gentile too. But for first century Jews who were often extremely racist against Gentiles, this would have caused serious problems. In many ways, I feel sorry for Peter. He had experienced some wonderful God moments in Caesarea Maritima. He saw God's hand at work in saving Cornelius and his family. And then he saw the Holy Spirit come down on him and those in his house. His heart had to be happy and full. But then he had to go home. I suspect that as Peter traveled that 55 or so mile trip back to Jerusalem... He was excited about what he had experienced, but was anxious about what he was about to encounter at the end of his journey. I suspect that he knew there were racist Christians awaiting him. They were going to trample his happiness into the ground as they stuck their fingers in his face and demanded answers. Listen to verses 2 and 3 of Acts chapter 11. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So there were legalists among them that focused more on measuring up to the law standard than on pursuing a love relationship with the Lord. They were Pharisaical Christians, if they were Christians at all. Maybe they had subscribed to Christianity, but maybe there was no true, genuine heart. But certainly, Christians can be pharisaical. And so, that's who these were that were saying, You went up and you went into the house of Gentile, unclean Gentiles, and you also ate with them. They wanted to know why Peter, a Jew, had stepped foot into the house of unclean Gentiles and even ate with them. So Peter got to share the story of how the Gentiles were saved and received the Holy Spirit. He just just didn't get to do it in a time of praise to Almighty God. Instead, he was forced to give his account to defend his actions. So Peter begins by saying that he was in Joppa and had a vision of a sheet coming down with all sorts of animals. And the implication is that some or even many of those animals were unclean according to the Old Testament dietary laws. And in his vision on the rooftop, Peter heard the voice say, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter then acknowledged 
to this crowd that was listening there in Jerusalem, he acknowledged that he responded as any serious Jew would have responded. He refused to eat the unclean animals and told the Lord so. He proclaimed that he had never eaten anything unclean and had no plans to change his eating habits now. But then the Lord said something in his vision a few times that was emphatic. Listen to verse 9. But a voice answered from heaven a second time. And this is what the voice said. This is the Lord. What God has made clean, you must not call impure. So Peter was making it clear that he didn't overlook any Old Testament laws whimsically. Instead, he was showing that he was ultimately following the Lord. Peter noted that while he was perplexed about what the vision might mean, you know, what's God really getting at? Because Peter had been with Jesus for three years. And a lot of times, you know, as Jesus talked, Peter knew that you could listen and you could hear what he said, but Jesus always had something deeper, always a spiritual meaning that was deeper. And so I wonder if Peter is thinking about this saying, okay, I'm hearing this, that the old, maybe the old dietary laws of the Old Testament are now gone, but I wonder if there's a deeper meaning to this. So while Peter, and so Peter noted that he was perplexed about what the deeper vision's meaning might be, uh, and while he was perplexed, three men, he said, three men Cornelius sent from Caesarea Maritima knocked on the door downstairs. So Peter was saying that he was under the Lord's authority as he took every step. If he hadn't heard the Lord's instructions, he wouldn't have dared to violate his conscience. He's telling this to this crowd in Jerusalem. He said the Lord first spoke in a vision. Well, actually, the Lord first spoke in a vision to Peter and Cornelius, but now the Lord's going to speak to Peter in the person of the Holy Spirit. Listen to verse 12. The Spirit told me, right? Peter's still defending himself to all of these Jews, Jewish Christians that are condemning him for going in, into the house and eating with Gentiles. And so Peter's defending himself, and he said in verse 12, The Lord told me to accompany them with no doubts at all. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we went into the man's house. So Peter is saying, The Lord told me, the Spirit told me. I didn't whimsically do this. I was following the Lord's commands, people. Well, then Peter transitions to what Cornelius told him, as Peter is giving this account, now he says, well, let me tell you what Cornelius told me. He said that, uh, you know, Cornelius had seen an angel in a vision that told him to send for Peter and then listen to whatever message he spoke. Well, what would the message be? The gospel. Listen to verses 13 and 14. He reported to us, Peter's talking, he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also named Peter. Here it is. He will speak a message to you by which you and all your household will be saved. So, the Lord in a vision, through an angel, told Cornelius that the message would be the message of salvation, how it is that Cornelius and his household, his friends and his family could be saved. So by this point in Peter's recounting of the, event, the events, I suspect that many were shaking their heads in affirmation. 
They had already concluded, as they listened to Peter, they had already concluded that this was clearly of the Lord. And then Peter shared something massive. Verse 15, Peter said, As I began to speak the gospel, right? The Holy Spirit came down on them. Why? Because they believed. It's not a prayer to be saved. You can say a prayer to get saved, but it's belief that saves you. It's belief. It's trusting in Jesus, transferring yourself, transferring trust from yourself to the Lord. And so as he began to speak and as they trusted in Jesus, they were saved. And it says the Holy Spirit came down on them just as on us at the beginning. He said the Holy Spirit came down on them just as on us at the beginning. Peter said that the Holy Spirit came down on the Gentiles as he started to speak, but it was significant because they spoke in other languages just like the Jewish disciples did in Acts 1 and 2. We were told this in the previous chapter that Cornelius and the people in his home talked in a different language. The purpose of the languages in Acts chapter 2 was to get the gospel out to all of these Jews who were in for the celebration of Pentecost who did not know Aramaic. And so they spoke in a different language so that all of these people from other countries could hear the gospel in their language. And what God did with Cornelius is there was no need for Cornelius to share the gospel. The gospel was being shared with him. But yet he still spoke in another language. Why? To demonstrate clearly to Peter, and then as Peter recounted it to the Jerusalem saints, to make it clear that God's gift of salvation and the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles was no less of an experience than the Jews. God was making it so abundantly clear that there is no distinction now between Jew and Gentile. There's no distinction between those who are trusting in Christ who are Jews and those who are trusting in Christ who are non-Jews, who are Gentiles. So God made it clear that the Gentiles were uh, that the Gentiles were not to be seen as unclean anymore. They were responding to the gospel just as some of the Jews were. This conclusion was clear. And it's the point that Peter built up to in verse 17. If then, Peter said, God gave them the same gift that he also gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? Do you hear what Peter's saying there? Let me say it again. If then God gave them the same gift that he also gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? Peter's conclusion was sound. The folks who had stuck their fingers in his face and asked how he could have stepped into the home of unclean Gentiles, well, they needed to take the matter up with God. Peter was just doing what the Lord had led him to do, and the Lord had made it clear that this was of him. In verse 18, when they heard this, they became silent. So they had nothing to say. They couldn't refute what Peter had shared. And they glorified God, saying, So then God has given repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. They were amazed that them, 
those of them in the Jerusalem church who were primarily Jews, and all of the apostles who were the elders of the church who were Jews, and Jesus who was a Jew, well, this message of the gospel and of Jesus is making its way to the Gentiles now, and they're being saved. Now that there were no enemies in their midst, Peter had shared this, and they were all in agreement. They all believed that God was in this. They were still reminded that there were plenty of enemies outside. Persecution had set in, beginning with Stephen, and it had scattered the believers as far away as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. However, we're told in verse 19 that the dispersed Jewish Christians we're only sharing the gospel with other Jews. And so you've got at the beginning of chapter 11, a Gentile is saved, and then Peter goes back and is talking about how God is now saving the Gentiles, and they are no less of a Christian than we are. They had the same experience. But yet, because of persecution, Jews were going out to other places, but they were only sharing the gospel with other Jews. Fortunately, As God providentially had it, a few Christians from other regions were sharing the gospel with Gentiles. And when the Jerusalem church heard that some Jewish believers had left Cyprus and Cyrene and were preaching the gospel to the Gentiles in Antioch, they sent Barnabas to investigate. Barnabas traveled roughly 300 miles north from Jerusalem to get to Antioch, about 300 miles He traveled 300 miles north to Antioch and saw God's fingerprints everywhere. So he did what he did best. Barnabas did what he did best. He encouraged all of them. He was an encourager. He encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. The church in Antioch would grow quickly and become incredibly influential in the Roman Empire. While Barnabas was in Antioch, he thought he'd go to Tarsus and find Saul, so he traveled 135 miles about uh, north and then west to get to Tarsus and brought Saul back to Antioch, where they taught large numbers for a whole year. One very significant tidbit about the city of Antioch is found in verse 26 where it says the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. First called little Jesuses, you know? It was probably intended to be a uh, a slur. It was probably intended to be something that was a, you know, a, a slur, a slang that was used to be offensive. And yet it stuck. Then in verses 27 and 28, we're told that some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And once again, you know, just pointing out that even though traveling to Antioch would be a northerly trip, uh, they went down to Antioch because Jerusalem was built on higher altitude. So they literally did go down to Antioch, even though they were heading north. Further, we need to realize that prophets, because it said prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, we need to realize that prophets were a vital part of the first century church. The New Testament had not yet been written, so the Lord spoke authoritatively through people. They would speak truth and sometimes tell of future events, but they would speak on behalf of the Lord to the congregation, 
two individuals. And so it says, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. So there were people that went from Jerusalem to Antioch, and we would assume that because there were new believers in Antioch, then there were those with the gift of prophecy that would stand up and preach and proclaim and teach God's word to these young believers to make sure that they were on the right path. Well, in verses 27 and 28, we read about a prophet, one of the prophets that went to Antioch, and his name was Agabus. Um, he prophesied that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman Empire. And in fact, it's, uh, we were given some historical information uh, regarding when that was to happen or when that did happen in the text. Consequently, this won't be the last time that Paul meets Agabus, this one that prophesied of the, uh, the famine. In fact, this prophet is going to later warn Paul in Acts chapter 21, verses 10 through 11, that if he goes to Jerusalem, which, you know, all along the way, Paul said, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to go. And all along the way, people were saying, please don't, you're going to get in trouble, you're going to be imprisoned, you may get yourself killed. Well, this prophet named Agabus uh, in Acts chapter 21, verses 10 and 11, is going to be the one who, as Paul is just 100 miles or so, actually a few hundred miles or so away from Jerusalem, uh, he's going to be the one that warns that imprisonment awaits Paul in Jerusalem and that he would be turned over to the Gentiles. Well, since Antioch was a bustling city, there were people in the church that were well-to-do. You know, there's jobs, there's there's wealth uh, to be made in, in the larger cities, and so we would assume that there were well-to-do, but others might not have done so well financially. But it seems like each of them, or most of them, apparently gave generously um, whenever they took up an offering to send money to the believers in Jerusalem who were suffering persecution. Listen to verses 29 and 30. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. Well, let me point out a couple of things here. One is it says they did this, sending it to the elders. Well, so far, uh, it's the leaders of the Church of Jerusalem have been referred to as the apostles. They are the apostles, but now they're called the elders. And this is going to be a term that really settles in. Uh, this is a word that is used in the original language uh, more than a few times to refer to those that lead the congregations. But, you know, I just want to be faithful to the text, and I just want you to know that whenever you see elder mentioned in the New Testament when it's referring to the one who was over the church, who is leading the church, it's almost always, I haven't looked up to make sure that it is you know, one way or the other, but most of the time, maybe all the time, but at least I can say most of the time, it's written in the plural. It's written in the plural. And so if we were to do church the way that they did church in the first century, we would not have just one pastor. And some would say, oh, well, you know, we have more than one pastor. We have a senior pastor, and then we got a lot of associate pastors. That That's not the model. That's something that we've made up. Do we have the ability to do that? Well, I think we, we can do that if we want to. Um, but if you look and are honest with the text in the New Testament, 
there was no not just one pastor. There were many pastors uh, that were serving together uh, in, over these churches. And there's there are, I mean, honestly, there's some wonderful benefits to leading a church in that way. But I just want you to notice, I'm, I'm not going to go any further into that, but I would just want you to notice in verse 30 that it says they did this sending it to the elders, sending it to the pastors. There was more than one pastor at the church in Jerusalem. But I want to now focus on uh, this gift I can only imagine the joy that filled Barnabas and Saul's hearts as they took the relief funds, this gift, to Jerusalem. They had to have known that this generous, free will gift from the Gentile believers in Antioch to Jewish believers in Judea would be well received and would probably soften hearts. Racism between Jewish believers and Gentiles believers was dying as it should have. And this gift from the Gentile believers to help the Jewish believers as part of their family would have softened hearts. God was tearing down the wall of racism. And this is the sort of thing that just naturally happens when the gospel is embraced. People are forgiven and inhabited by the Holy Spirit. That's what happens when we're saved. We're forgiven by the Lord, and the Holy Spirit comes in to dwell. And the Holy Spirit's job is essentially to help each believer live in conformity to the Word of God and develop a relationship with the Lord. As more and more people do this, God cultivates a sense of community that the world simply cannot mimic. Jews and Gentiles who hated each other were transformed by the gospel and became part of a big, loving family, even as we saw the Gentile Christians in Antioch were sacrificially taking up an offering to help the Jewish Christians in Judea. And I'm telling you, if the gospel can eradicate the animosity and cultivate love between Jews and Gentiles, then the gospel can heal any other form of racism as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we don't experientially understand the prejudice that existed between Jews and Gentiles. It's not in our world. It's not in our framework. We, we don't understand that. We've not seen it. It's a form of prejudice that we just cannot comprehend. But we do understand prejudice between Christians that's based on the color of skin pigment. We understand prejudice that appears because someone doesn't have the same education achievements or the same socioeconomic status or who sins differently than we do. We do understand those prejudices. We see it. If we're honest, we have some of those in our own heart. We may have some of those in our own heart. Lord Jesus, please make us aware of wherever the root of prejudice might be hiding out in our hearts. Enable us to see it for what it is, despise it, and ask for your forgiveness. Then, Holy Spirit, please cultivate within us biblical ways of seeing the people around us. 
We want to become more like Jesus, even in how he saw and loved others, regardless of how different they may have been from him. We pray this in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. If looking over the script for this podcast would be beneficial to you, hop on over to my website at mattsmusings.net. I'll provide a link in this episode's show notes. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you next time.